Hey, this is Jen, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. In John chapter 11, verse 45 through 54, and I invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So I'm really excited for where we are um, in John, because it actually, the reason we're reading about Palm Sunday is not only because uh, Palm Sunday is this Sunday, but it's because this passage that we're in tonight uh, literally happens right before Palm Sunday. And I, I know I'm the one in charge of uh, who is preaching and what passages we preach and how we broke it up, but I'll be honest, I haven't memorized the whole Bible, so I was just kind of divvying it up, and I was like, oh, that's so awesome that we are now going into the part right before the triumphal entry. And so honestly, if you want to go home tonight and prepare yourself for this Sunday, you can read John 12. That's literally what's called the triumphal entry which Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and the crowds start waving these palm branches, again, Palm Sunday, uh, before Jesus screaming out, God, save us. Jesus is the king of our salvation. But prior to that, there's this small scene connecting John 11 and John 12, which is where we're going to be tonight. And, and it's an interesting scene because it shows us the reason why uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus. But it also shows us um, that Jesus can bring goodness out of suffering. I'll say it again. Jesus can indeed bring goodness out of suffering. And so that tonight's message is titled, A Plan We Could Not Imagine. Now, if there's one thing I know for sure, and trust me, there aren't many. Like, I, there's very few things in my life that I know without a, without a shadow of a doubt. But if there's one thing I do know, it's that Jesus moves and acts in ways that just do not make sense to me. Anybody with me on that one? You're just like, Jesus, I just do, like, why? Why are you like this? You know, like, like why, why do you ask me to do these things? Why are things like this? And that reality at times for me can be super frustrating because I like things that make sense, all right? Like, I'm a planner, okay? I'm the kind of guy who in college wrote down every class they would take, 
for four years, break it down between, and I, and I wrote, and I, it wasn't even, I just wrote down all my classes. I wrote down all my classes and then wrote out the different options of how I could take it. Well, if I want to do a Monday, Wednesday, th- Friday, I probably shouldn't take that Thursday class. Or like, like literally, I was the, I, and, I, and I even went to previous years and downloaded syllabi from that professor to see like maybe kind of what the assignments would do and I would do it ahead of time. Like that's just the kind of person I am. I like to have a logical progression in the things that I do. I like it even now for my life to have a charted course that makes sense to me. And as I was preparing for this message, I, I remembered my, how I got started in full-time ministry, right? Like I, I felt called by God to go into pastoral ministry when I was about a sophomore in college. And it was such a strong internal calling that I actually ended up leaving New York City right after I graduated college in 2016. And I left the beautiful city of New York City for the less beautiful city, Orlando, because I wanted to go to seminary and be prepared for ministry. Don't be butthurt, guys. Like, this is, this is like, you can, you can live here and not like it, okay? Get over it. It's fine. So I ended up beginning my time at Mosaic as a worship intern. And let me tell you, Caleb can attest to this. I hated it. Like I, like I, it was, looking back on it, I just was really upset that this is what God was asking me to do. And I remember my first assignment. My very first assignment was to do these filing cabinets. Okay, we were back in the old building. Before we were here, there was these filing cabinets. And right before I came in, we had our new worship pastor, Zach. So we came around the same time. And so the previous worship pastor had all of these like Chris Tomlin songs like they would never use ever again. And so his task to me was, hey, Caesar, you're going to take these six filing cabinets full of paper and I need you to narrow it down to two filing cabinets. And I'm like, what? This is, this is how I'm supposed to learn how to be a pastor? This is the dumbest thing you could ever ask me to do. And I remember, anyway, that doesn't matter. Anyway, so I remember I started my time as an intern. And, and over time, yes, God began to start working in my heart and show me that I needed to be more humble. And, and God loved me through that and, and, and showed me that I needed to let go of my arrogance in order to even consider being in full-time ministry. But as God was doing that, there was these moments where I had to really wrestle with God and be like, hey, like, God, you called me to full-time ministry, but here we are right now. As an intern, when is this thing going to happen? Like, when am, when am I going to start getting upgraded and elevated within this space? And then finally, there was this potential opportunity for me to join the young adult team. And they were looking for someone to take on this ministry full-time because prior, it was actually Joel and Caleb that used to run this ministry. So, like, listen, next time you're praying, you can thank God for Joel and Caleb that this ministry even continues to exist. Yeah, you can, was anyone clapping their hand? Yeah, you can clap your hand. That's fine, you can clap your hand. Because not only did they keep this ministry going, they put up with my nonsense at the same time. But, but they were going to transition this leadership over from Joel and Caleb to somebody new. And the two people they were considering were me and my friend Justin Neal. And now, you know, to be honest, I wasn't really too worried about it. I thought I had this in the bag. Like I was just this arrogant punk that thought, listen, God called me to pastoral ministry. I got this in the bag. This is the, way, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And I, I mean, I've been working hard to, to, to get here. Like I did the internship. I went to seminary. I was always saying yes to everything in the hopes that I would be seen and valued. And then they finally went with Justin. And as you can imagine, 
I was also equally ticked. I was like, man, don't these six cabinets of paper equal anything around here? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? And I was just so upset with God, and I kept going to God in frustration. I was like, why aren't you following through on what you called me to do? Like, this is all just a waste of time. Do you even care about me? And the irony of the story is that two years' time, here I am. Like, I would be the young adult director here, and it just wasn't in my time. It was in God's time. But here's a question that I, that I had to wrestle with myself and I, and I want you to, to think about it tonight is what happens when your plan for your life doesn't match up with God's plan? Everybody been in those moments? Like I've, I've, I have planned my life and nothing is going according to plan. Like you see, here's the thing. Once we become Christians, Jesus begins to invite us into his story. And the story that Jesus invites us into doesn't always make sense to you or to me and doesn't always line up perfectly to what we thought our life would, would be. And I've noticed that many of us, when we run up against these situations that elicit pain and struggle that we thought we wouldn't have to face because we follow Jesus, we just tend to abandon Jesus' story. It's like it was easier doing it my own way because at least if I failed, I can only be mad at myself. And then we hear God's plan, right? Like here's these things that he wants us to do and we don't like it, so we abandon it. And then we go back to charting our own course because we falsely believe this lie that we could write a better story for ourselves than God can write for us. And, and, and if that is true, if God isn't going to care for me, then I need to care for myself. And then there are some of us that, that abandon Jesus' plan altogether, create our own plan, and then we bring it to God and be like, hey, can you bless this? Can you just give a little bit of a sprinkle of amen on this? And that's why in American churches, we get a version of Christianity that says, Jesus just wants you to be happy. He'll give you everything you want. Pray for it and it'll happen. Just have a little bit of faith. Maybe sell a little bit of money into it. You know, like that's just the version of Christianity we get. But that's not what Jesus says. Unfortunately, Jesus' words are much more strong about what happens when his will and our will start to clash. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's not a Bible verse that you're going to see on your coffee mugs because it's not a fun one. But it is a foundational aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that we would be willing to let go of our ideal plans for ourselves in order to follow after God's plans. But why would Jesus ask that of us? Like, why would Jesus want us to reject the good things that we desire? Does he, not really, does he really not want me to have a boyfriend or girlfriend? Does he really not want me to have that job? Does he not want me to be able to pay my bills? Does, like, does, does Jesus really even care? He's asking us to deny, him, deny ourselves because he's offering us a chance to experience something more than what these other things can offer us. And so tonight, in tonight's passage, he's gonna first start showing us why anything other than him cannot satisfy us. Let's turn back to the text. We pick up here in verse 46, right? 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. So we see right here, this is Jesus right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. John tells us that many people start to believe in Jesus because of this miracle, which is no surprise, right? I mean, I don't know about you. Have, you, have any of you ever seen someone come back to life? 
and neither have they. This is like a one, it's not even like in a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal. This is like a once-in-a-never kind of ordeal, right? There's nothing like this has been seen in human history. So naturally, like, I didn't believe in Jesus before, but I kind of really believe him in now. He's started raising this dude up from the dead. But just like other places in the book of John when he does a miracle, usually there's a group of people who say, yes, I believe. And there's a group of people who are like, I don't even care what I saw. I reject this. And so these group of people leave Jesus. They go to the Pharisees and they tell him, that, like, they tattle on him. Like, listen, Jesus is up to some crazy stuff. We don't know what, he's, like, what power he's tapping into, but he's raising Lazarus from the dead. He's doing some crazy things. And as these people reject Jesus, this actually begins to set in motion the trial that would result in Jesus' death sentence. And then in verse 47, it says that the chief priests and and the Pharisees have this big meeting. And this is a really big detail because the chief priests and the Pharisees, while you often see them together in these spaces, they're not friends, okay? They're not like hanging out, doing Sabbath dinner together and be like, how's everything going? Is your sheep doing well? Yeah, my goat's doing great. Like they're not hanging out. And the best way I know how to describe this is in college football terms. And I worked really hard on this, so deal with it. I don't even know anything about college football, but I think this is right. It's like if the Gators and the Knolls, okay, okay, I'm going hold on. You already feel it, right? You're a Gators fan, so you don't want to hang out with Knowles fans, right? So if a Gators fan, and so the Gators and the Knowles got together for whatever reason, right? Because, and, and they got together because for whatever reason, the UCF Knights, for whatever reason, pose an actual threat, right? So the Gators and the Knowles aren't friends, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know what I'm saying? So that's what's happening here. So the, the Pharisees are like, I don't like you. And the chief priests chief priest are saying, I don't like you either. But they're like, we don't like Jesus. So we're friends here. And so they're both threatened by Jesus and have no idea how to handle this, this carpenter from Nazareth. So they decide to team up together and figure a way to resolve their problems. Notice how they decide to take care of Jesus. The chief priest of the temple gets up And he says, don't you know it's better for one man to die than for all of us to lose everything? Now, now think about this for a moment. If someone's just, is bothering you a lot, is your first instinct to go kill them? Some of you are like, depends on the day. Depends on what they've done. I I don't, you have a list, jeez. Like, I, I don't, I, I definitely don't know about you, but I, there's very, 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 very little that I would ever, like, that would ever convince me to actually kill somebody. Short of defending Rachel or someone in my family, I'm just not going to kill anybody for anything, okay? But these groups of people woke up and they chose violence, right? <laughs> what they were, like, but, but then I'm wondering, like, what could they be so concerned about that they were willing to kill Jesus over? This is what 48, verse 48, read this with me. This is what they say together. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our our place, our temple, and our nation. So the Jews fear that if they allow Jesus to continue doing signs and miracles, that people will start to follow him. So wait a second. You're killing Jesus because you're mad that they like like them better than you? I don't know about that. And the reality is that's not what it is. It's not a popularity contest. See, they were concerned that the people would start to follow Jesus and start to declare him as king. And we have to remember, this is taking place in Jerusalem, which falls under the jurisdiction of Rome. And in Rome, there's one authority, and it's Julius Caesar. 
He is the emperor. In fact, he would be seen as the God of Rome. There is no other God other than Caesar. And it's why it's on all the money and the medallions, the face of Caesar would be carved onto it because everything that is considered a part of Rome, Rome's domain belongs to Caesar. And if all the Jewish people started to start saying, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, then guess what? They would hear about it. They would see this as a direct threat to the power and authority of Rome. And Rome would do just what they always do, destroy them. But it was more than that. You see, these two groups of people are holding this trial for Jesus with, without Jesus even being there. And they meet in a place called the Sanhedrin. And if you're invited to the Sanhedrin, it's because you're part of an elite group of religious Jews of the highest authoritative and governing body in all of first century Judaism. So they, like, literally, they, they, they controlled power and order in all of Jewish decision-making. So these men had power among the Jews. So it wasn't that they were really worried that Rome would come in and squash them. They were worried that they would lose all the power that they had gained. But think about how fragile your plan has to be for some dude from, a, from the wilderness who cuts tables and can come in and suddenly disrupt your plan. That means it's a pretty fragile plan. And they built this temple of, of power and yet it was so easily threatened by Jesus. So much so that they get all the leaders in one room and think about murdering him. These people did not want their plans to be messed with. Because up to this point, they had it really good. They had the best of both worlds. They thought they were in God's good graces, and they thought they were in a good place with the world in Rome. And on the surface, these leaders were being obedient to God. Right? Like, like, like they taught in the temple, they followed God's law, they kept everything in line and in order. But behind closed doors, we find these Jewish men practicing injustice. They manipulate people to following their teachings. They take money from Rome in exchange for making sure that Jews stay loyal to the emperor. And in this scene, we see them literally putting an innocent man named Jesus put to death so that they could keep what they have gained. These people had one hand on God and one hand on the world. And let me tell you, today's Christians practice this in spades. Now this is what I'm talking about is holding on to Jesus with one hand and the world on the other is one of the most demonic practices that a Christian can fall into. And it's something that I see that many of us struggle with us in this room. Because to practice a version of Christianity where you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but in your hearts you hold on to the rotting delicacies of this world is in fact demonic. And you might think I'm being dramatic here because you hear demonic and you think possession or demons and all these things, but, but here, here, here's the deal. I call it demonic because if you have Jesus on one hand and the world on the other, you will always live in rebellion towards God. And rebellion is all that demons know how to do. All demonic activity is tied to the idea of going against the will of God. And so many of us know what this kind of life looks like. I love Jesus, but I also like sleeping with my girlfriend because sex is great. I love Jesus, but I like to gossip a little because if I can't feel good about myself, neither can the people around me. I love Jesus, but I also kind of like to numb myself with alcohol because Jesus can't take care of my pain. I love Jesus, but I also love watching porn because you know what? It doesn't really hurt anybody. 
Or I love Jesus, but I'll skip church on Sunday to watch my favorite football team because church will always be there next week, but honestly, my giants need me. I'm their lucky charm. But what we fail to recognize is that both the world and Jesus require full allegiance. And Matthew 6, 24 reminds us that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And see, when we try to hold on to Jesus and the world, what we're really saying is this. This is the ache of our heart. I don't know if I can trust you, Jesus, and I don't really know if I can trust you, world, but I'm hoping that by holding on to both, one of you will come through for me. Because the plan that we're writing for ourselves, here's the truth. The best option we have when we, make, when we hold on to the world and create a plan for ourselves is receiving the best that the world can give. Our plans are at the will of the world. But you and I both have to be honest with each other and know that the world, that the best of that this world has to offer cannot satisfy you. Because if it could, then we would just abandon Jesus altogether. If the sex, if the job, if the pills, if the fill in the blanks could satisfy, then we would... In all reason, just let go of Jesus and cling on to those things. But the very fact that you're unwilling to let go of one or the other is because you're hoping that one of them will follow through. But you know the world doesn't. And this is what 1 John 2.15 says, is do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. And you might read this and think John is telling us just to hate everything, right? Just hate your neighbors, it's pretty easy, or hate your belongings, or hate the culture, hate everything that's in this world. But what John is saying is, is not that I'm calling you to hate the world. What he's saying is do not love the world or anything in it because it cannot provide you for what you long for. Can I ask you why you're even here tonight? Or maybe you can ask yourselves that. Why do you come here? Is it because you're hoping that Jesus is enough? Or is it that you, you, you think that you can maybe find a good Christian boy or girl that you can just kind of mess around with thinking it's a little bit more holy because you heard that Christian boys and girls make good spouses? You're just hoping that God will just give you a little douse of amen over your plans. But let me tell you something. If I can just, just pass through you for a second. You can come in here week in and week out and you can try to get your needs met by somebody here, but they will fail you. They will fail you because they're human. And there's only one person who can and will satisfy you and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to let go of our plans and to stop turning to the world and instead fully turn to him and cling on to what he has to offer. Do you know what the plan of God is for you and for the rest of humanity? Like if someone were to ask you, what, what does God really want for me? Would you be able to give him an answer? You see, the plan of God is far greater than anything you and I could ever imagine. And it was far greater than the Pharisees and the chief priests were even able to see. Because the vision that God has for humanity is a story that is marked by, by renewal, restoration, and redemption. 
And if you read the whole Old Testament, you'll find that there are traces of this vision peppered throughout the words of God from the very beginning. When mankind fell in sin, God put a a plan of salvation in motion. And this vision that God has for humanity like, 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 like what that means is that God's plan is for his people to be given back everything that was taken from them when sin entered the world. And the plan of God was so, was so amazing that the Jews couldn't see it. And, and, but, but we see that these, these leaders with their plans, like I, I wrote little tiny sandbox, but it's, it's, it's not like that. They're not playing in a little sandbox. These religious Jewish leaders were playing in a cat litter box with, with little pebbles and poop. Like seriously, and, they, and, they, and, and like, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time with cats and I could be wrong, but this is how I imagine how cats are in the litter box, just playing with their poop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just, like that's just kind of how I imagine cats doing this and if and you're a cat lover, sorry, I don't love cats. So... <laughs> But this is what the religious leaders were doing, playing in their poop, playing in their little heap of poop, thinking this is the best this world can offer and I'm gonna hold on to it. But God's plan isn't so tiny and selfish and stinky. It is fully characterized by God's mercy and grace towards humanity. And we actually see that here in verse 50 and 51. Let's read it together. Nor... This, this is Caiaphas pre, uh, prophesying. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the nation, for the people, not the whole nation should perish. 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So God's plan for renewal, restoration, and redemption were all riding on what? Jesus. But Jesus is What? Death. Jesus' death had to happen. And it was meant for both Jews and Gentiles. And this death was meant for all who would place their faith in Jesus as their savior and as payment for their sins. You see, it, for, if you think for a moment as you read this story that these group of men got together and they planned Jesus' death and then Jesus was like, ah, I lost, I guess I'm dead now. No, the cross was divinely planned. And the cross was divinely executed. In fact, it says that God was pleased to crush his son because sin could not be ignored. Because as long as sin held power over humanity, humanity could never be with God. And this is what would drive the king of the cosmos to be condescended to, to condescend himself, to come onto earth, to die a criminal's death, and to experience the most excruciating execution known in human history. It's because God wants to redeem and restore us to himself. And I gotta be honest, no matter how many times I read the scriptures, no matter how many times I read this story of redemption, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's exactly how Jesus operates. He doesn't operate according to the wisdom of the world. He operates according to the wisdom of his infinite knowledge. He does not act selfishly, but instead gives all of himself and everything he does. This, this is the goodness that Jesus is offering us. And this is the truth he wants us to cling to. Like, don't you want to experience this plan God has for you? A plan that that leads you to feeling fully alive. 
wouldn't you want to, like, be honest, wouldn't you want to experience freedom for a minute? Like, aren't you tired of feeling like there's a weight constantly on your shoulders that you just cannot get off? Wouldn't it be nice to feel whole and not feel like something's wrong with you and know that something's not missing inside of you anymore? I can imagine that some of you can't even imagine that, but that's what he's offering you. He's offering it to you right now. And it sounds like it's too good to be true, but it's as good as it sounds. And Jesus wants you to know that there is nothing that can stop this plan from happening. Let's, let's just read 48, verse 48 for a second. It says this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the religious leaders were worried that they would lose their power, their temple, their nation to Rome. But they made a grave miscalculation. They were basing their actions on the premise that Rome was the one who allowed that nation to exist. That if it weren't for Rome and for Caesar, there'd be no religious freedoms. They believed that it was by human hands that the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. But what these religious leaders forgot that it was God and not Rome that established them in Jerusalem. You see, actually, almost a millennia, so almost a thousand years before the events of this moment occurred during Jesus' earthly ministry, God established a nation. You'll read this in the Old Testament, which we know as Israel. And they had various kings, you know, King David, King Saul, Solomon. After Solomon, the, the, temp, the, the, the kingdom splits in half. And over the years, both the kingdoms would reject God. And as you read the major and minor prophets, we read that God told them. Here's the thing, God told them. It's kind of like a parent. You know how like you tell a kid, hey, this is going to happen. If it happens, that's your problem, right? God was saying, listen, I have this plan for you. Follow it. If you don't, here is the consequence. You're going to lose it all and you're going to be put into captivity. And the people don't listen. And the prophecies that God gave to Israel came exactly as it, God told them it would. But it doesn't end there. God both prophesies their captivity and their eventual restoration. God actually sends this prophet named Jeremiah to prophesy over the Jewish people who were taken into captivity. And God sends the, these people into captivity because of the rebellion. But this is what Jeremiah says. This is what God says to them through Jeremiah. I'll read it for us. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring to you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. People know this verse quite well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to into exile. And lo and behold, all of this happens exactly as God says it would. Because after the end of 70 years, Babylon destroys the Persian Empire and Cyrus the Great. Like, listen, you can literally read this in your history books. Like, you don't got to take my word for it. You don't have to read the Bible to believe it. it is, you've learned this at some point in your world geography cl class or your whatever world history class that this actually happened. And so Cyrus the Great, the emperor of the Persian Empire, destroys Babylon, takes the Israelites and says, hey, you want to go back home? Okay, go back to Jerusalem. Hey, guess what? Here's some resources. Go rebuild everything that there's other people destroyed in your place. And I need you to know something. That's not normal. 
Like, that's not a normal occurrence, ever. Whenever a king conquers another king, they don't go and release all their slaves. They need people to, to do work. And yet here, we find that this king releases them to go back to rebuild the temple. And why am I telling you this? It's because there is someone who said this would happen. Word for word, event for event, and that person is God. I love how, how God puts it in Isaiah 46. He says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Think about that. To declare that something has not yet happened from beginning and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of the council from, my, from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When God purposes to do something, it will get done. May we not be like the religious leaders and try to take things into our own hands because any plan that we can try to make for ourselves will always pale in comparison to Jesus' plan of renewal, restoration, and redemption. Please hear me when I say this. No one can stop God. And that's actually the biggest irony of this whole passage in tonight. All these men get in a room together and be like, we got, Jesus, out, we got this. And then we find through the exact same words, Jesus uses the evil plans of these religious leaders to accomplish his will. These men thought they owned the situation and controlled the situation. They thought they could get everything they wanted and remove Jesus from the equation. But even the words and plan that Caiaphas concocted in his brain was not of his own accord. It says that he prophesied, and the only one who can use a human to prophesy the future is who? It's God. This is saying that Caiaphas might have been moving his lips, but God was the one speaking. Crazy. God can use any circumstance to accomplish his will. But this is only good news if you know that God's plan for you is good. And I'm here to tell you and remind you that God's plan for every single one of those who call him Lord is good. It's better than good. It's unimaginably amazing because Jesus will only invite you into a story that has your goodness in mind. Not the easiest, but the best in mind. But if we're gonna be honest, there's a major obstacle for us, right? Because if there's one thing that makes it hard for us to find comfort in the fact that God is in control, it's what? It's our suffering. Let's be clear. Every single one of us in this room has had moments or seasons of pain and suffering that we want to make sure will never happen to us again. A breakup, job rejection, not having enough money to pay for rent and bills, no dating prospects, broken relationships with your parents, unforeseen pregnancies, abortions. And when those things come into our lives, we think, man, there is no way God still wants good for us. Growing up, there was one thing that I wanted to be more than anything else. Well, two things. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a Pokemon trainer. But the second thing... <laughs> more realistic option was I wanted to be an actor, which shouldn't be a surprise because I'm pretty dramatic. 
And I know I've told you stories about how in college I like was setting myself up to be a lawyer, but that was more for my parents than it was for me. And I wanted, I wanted a different path for myself. I wanted to be in TV shows and movies. I, I really wanted my name in lights. And, and I went to a performing arts high school. Uh, fun fact, uh, I was in the same class as Ansel Elgort, and uh, I was friends with Timothy Chalamet. So if that means anything to you, that's my only claim to fame. If not, don't worry about it. It's not as cool as it sounds. And in college, uh, I was a full-time student, but in, uh, I, I, I went out of my way to find, find an agent, went to acting classes, went to every audition I could possibly go to. And for eight years, I tried my hardest to achieve this dream and, and prayed to God constantly that he would let this happen. And, and every time I got an audition, I'd be like, oh, thank you, Lord, you do want this for me. And, and for eight years of effort, all I had to show for it were hundreds and hundreds of rejections. And, and, and it was hard because in, in that industry, they, they, they have no problem telling you why you're not right for the role. Uh, too short, too fat, not good looking enough, not ugly enough, not ethnic looking enough. Could you imagine showing, like, talking to a Latino and be like, you're just not Latino looking enough for me. It's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm brown. Like, I don't, know, I don't know. How more, more, how more ethnic can I look for you? And so you would imagine when, when God called me into pastoral ministry in college, I was radically confused because I was like, God, why, why, why would you allow me to go through all of these moments of training on all these things just so that I would leave New York and go into ministry? But I, I made a pact with God. I said, hey, listen, God, if nothing good, like if nothing happens in this world, um, I'll, I'll pack everything up and I'll move to Florida. Well, college ends and I come to Florida, but, you know, along the way, I had to ask God, I was like, God, why would you let me go through all that, heart, that work and heartache if ministry was ultimately what you had for me? Couldn't we have just bypassed all of it? All the pain, all the struggle, all the suffering. And then God reminded me that as a kid, I forgot about this, I was so shy. Like, I hated public speaking. I spoke too fast, I jumbled my words, I was always, I, I, you know, I, I was always a much better writer than a speaker. And then it finally dawned on me. God used those eight years of acting classes, speech training, and rejection. Because God wanted me to be a preacher. And you might be like, what does that even matter? And it's like, because here, here, here's the deal. The one thing that I have come to know about God is that he can and will use our suffering for, for good. Because there's two kinds of suffering here. There's one where you, you suffer because you fall after Jesus and, and, that, and there's just struggles with that. And then the other kind of suffering happens when we, we're just disobedient and try to go against God's plans. But God is able in either circumstance to make purpose out of our pain. And you're like, are you seriously saying that right now? Purpose out of my pain? Like, that doesn't help me wipe the tears I cry. I can't write that on a napkin and, and pretend that helps the ache in my heart. That doesn't help my loneliness. That doesn't help my depression. That doesn't, this doesn't help. I hear you. Jesus being able to make purpose out of our pain shows that he's capable of anything. That he's in sovereign, he's in control. But there has to be another aspect of God for that to be comforting but he shows us his heart by saying that when you're in pain, I'm there with you. Just think about the life of Jesus for one moment. He is the very son of God, God himself, 
brought onto the earth, vulnerable to the outside world. He was a carpenter. He was lowly. He lived among the common people. He was despised and rejected. Even as he approached his death, most of his friends and followers left him. He was whipped, beaten, and crucified, all so that he would accomplish his story of redemption for us. And it would be that suffering that Jesus would use for our salvation. But what blows my mind more than anything else is that Jesus would join in on the suffering of his own people. I don't know if there's any human being that is willing to say like, oh, you're getting stabbed? I'll come join you. No. Literally, there's not a single person that says, oh, oh you're getting cheated on? I mean, I, let me get cheated on too. Oh, you, you, you're, you're, you're hungry? Let me be hungry with you too. There's, there's nowhere, there's no bone in our bodies, no matter how nice you may be, that you will say that to somebody and mean it without, without like regret. But Jesus here uses his pain. So he enters into our pain, takes it upon himself, uses his pain for our good. Because his good is not that we would never have anything bad happen. His good is that even when the circumstances in life are horrible, you will never, ever be left alone. and That it will never overcome you because he is by your side. We worry that the will of God will cost us everything we love, but we forget that Christ gave up everything to give us all his love. And when this love is directed towards you and to me, he will use everything at his disposal to accomplish his plans of goodness for you. If God can come through on every single thing he said he would, he did it with Israel, did it with Jesus, and he's doing it with us, why would he fail now? Your finances, God is in control of that. Your family struggles, God is in control of that. Your marital status, yes, God is in control of that. And the salvation of your friends and family, God is in control of that. Your career path, your education, all of this is in God's hands. I want to just leave you with this in a moment. You see, there's a bit in the, in the Old Testament, the people of God loved to name God by attaching his characteristics to his name. So it'd be like Jehovah something. But as we read John, we know that God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Jesus is God. So all the names that apply to, to God in the Old Testament apply to Jesus. So I want us tonight to see that Jesus is more than just the God who's in control or the one who sits in our pain. He is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He is El Alam, the everlasting God, and he is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. See, Jesus is the one who can use the plans of humans to accomplish his will for your life. Nothing can thwart him. No man, can, no, no plan of evil will stop him. God can use any circumstance to accomplish his will in your life, and circumstances don't change or negate that because he is God over all. And what I love about the story of redemption is this, is after he's done reminding you of what he's gonna do in your life, he turns to us and says, would you like to join me on my story of redemption? Were you willing to give up your plan so that I can shower you with my love and then you now in turn 
give it on to others. See, as long as we hold on to the world while trying to live for Jesus, we will constantly be at war with this vision that God has given us. So I'm gonna give you this small little acronym I came up with about how we can learn to cling to Jesus and become better vessels of redemption in this world. The acronym just came out. I didn't like plan it. I was like, oh, this works. The acronym is WAR. <laughs> and yeah, W-A-R. So if you're a note takers, I will walk you through this. But when we're considering what happens when our plan and God's plans don't match up, this is how we respond. W, we must release our plans to the Lord. And this is something that we will have to do constantly in our lives because as we journey in this life with Jesus, there will be new areas where you'll be tempted to create your own plans instead of following after Jesus' plan for renewal, restoration, and redemption. Second, ask the Holy Spirit for help to release your plans and ask him to reveal what God's will is for you. And this is crucial because we need the power of the Holy Spirit to let go of whatever we thought was sustaining us. And as we let go, sometimes we can get caught up in trying to do things for God, but it's really just fueled by our own thoughts and emotions. But 1 Corinthians 2.11 says that the only person that can know the mind of Christ is the Holy Spirit. So we rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the will of the Father. And then finally, R, respond to Jesus in surrender. He is not looking for your sacrifice or good intentions. He's looking for your obedience. He doesn't want perfection. That's his job. He wants your trust. God wants to see this world renewed, restored, and redeemed, and he's invited us to be participants in that process of renewal. Nothing can stop him. So may we, with excitement, deny ourselves pick up our cross, and follow him to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, may we not sow our hearts and anchor our lives on a weak gospel. One that makes us God and makes you small. Though we recognize that we make terrible gods, we can make very small plans, but yours is greater. You are greater. I pray tonight if there's any of us who are, are struggling to believe that you are in control, that you would show us that there has never been anything that you've planned that has not come to fruition. Would you remind us that, that your goodness is not just imagined, but is directly directed at us. You've written a story of redemption that did not need us and yet you include us. May we learn to just give up all that we are for all that you have for us. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.